Hello, I'm Scott Sostrom. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and you're listening to the Sportacast. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mr. Novi Williams, how was your weekend, my friend? It was good. It was good. I'm up in Boston. Had my first trip to Fenway Park on Friday. Really? You'd uh, never been to Fenway? I had never been to Fenway. Uh, it was as advertised. Very cozy. Had the, has that old-time baseball feel that you only get in a few select ballparks now. When you say cozy, now, is is that code for uncomfortable and old? Or, I mean, this, you don't have a lot of leg room. Uh, when I worked the World Series there, it's very hard to get around sort of the tunnels and stuff, small clubhouse. If you're looking for creature comforts, do not go to Fenway Park. If you're looking for nostalgia, yes, then then go hang out uh, on Fenway's. I think uh, I'm on rolling Fenway's stuff. I'm rolling all of that into one thing that you, you're right. The seats are not maybe the most comfortable and, and sight lines maybe not be the, the best in, in baseball. But I do think there is the, the nostalgia aspect counts for something in, in in a nice way. So I would definitely go back. That's for sure. It was it was a fun night and they scored like 100. I mean, runs, we have a bunch made of it better. Yeah. Well, we can have a bunch of topics that we do talk about, but I mean, we can pursue this for a little bit, even though it was totally unscheduled and we hadn't. But the idea of, oh, we can never tear down Fenway. There's so much history. I mean, you know, they're stuck. You have the highway right there. So, I mean, that's why you have that green monster. So I don't know how much room they have, but I would say if you can tear down Yankee Stadium, which of course they did, then you can certainly tear down almost any sports arena or stadium and say, hey, it just, you know, it, it just gets old and you, you need the new modern conveniences and luxury and premium and all that stuff if you're hoping to stay competitive. Do you buy that? I mean, I for one thing, I, I grew up going to Yankee Stadium. I never felt like the old Yankee Stadium had you know, bleachery, really old time, 1910s, 1915s, 20s baseball vibes to it. Uh, Fenway certainly does. I mean, it's a great question for, for, for John Henry, who owns Fenway Sports Group. I'm sure he knows he's leaving a lot of money on the table by having a stadium, both the size and layout of Fenway uh, versus having a brand new, much bigger, fancier, uh, more monetizable stadium. I would also argue that there is there's probably some 
maybe uncalculatable financial value to having Fenway the way it is, right? That it um, it's sold out more often. There's kind of an air of exclusivity to it. It does give off kind of the nostalgia that you were talking about at the front. And if you lose that, I mean, for example, just to, to kind of point out of this as a really small sample size, but when I was looking at tickets for the Red Sox, the Red Sox are in Yankee Stadium later this week. So the, the next two series were the one at Yankee Stadium, the one at Fenway. The Phillies games at Fenway were significantly more expensive on the secondary market than the Red Sox-Yankees in Yankee Stadium, one of the biggest rivalries in sports. Uh, so I do think there may be some financial value uh, for having Fenway the way it is, as opposed to a glitzy new you know billion-dollar stadium like Yankee Stadium is. But what if you just, if you tore it down and built a modern replica, Green Monster, the whole shebang, but you had more luxury spaces, bigger clubhouses. I don't know, just figure out a way to modernize it, but you still have the same feel and look. Yeah, it's a good question. It certainly, it seems possible that the space is also a, an interesting consideration because you're right. There's, there's stadiums you go to where there's tons of room around when you look at, you know, what they did in Atlanta, for example, when they moved the baseball stadium across the parking lot. Um, there's, there's no space near Yankee stadium. Same thing, right? They built the new one right next to the old one. You're not doing that in, uh, in Fenway park, uh, the, the way it is right now. So space I'm sure is a consideration here as well. Did you partake in some of the uh, bars right alongside the uh, the old ballpark there? And were you wearing your Yankee hat <laughs> <laughs> while doing it? We went out to a few spots, uh, to, to a spot right before the game. Um, but yeah, you see, we didn't do anything afterwards, but you get the whole kind of downtown vibe. And this is the thing I think you, you miss out on in a lot of places. And again, since I grew up in the New York area, I grew up going to Yankee Stadium and to, to City Field and Shea Stadium. Shea Stadium does not really have that, this whole kind of neighborhood around that, that people are going to for a couple hours before before. No, the it's the chop shops. Yeah. But they're and, hoping they're hoping to create such a thing outside yes. of City Field. And Yankee Stadium maybe has a little bit of that, but certainly nothing to the degree that Fenway. It felt like the entire neighborhood was either going to the game in, in an hour or so or was dressing up just to be downtown for when the game was happening. Uh, and there's real value, I think, in having downtown stadiums for that exact purpose for sure. Yeah, what do you go to stands, Billy's when you go up to the stadium in the Bronx? I, I still uh, can't believe that this is your first Fenway trip. Like, you're not first, a young man anymore. As I love trip. to point out, you're not a young man anymore. And I did my first uh, Wrigley trip. Uh, shout out to Julie. She was there for both of them, but did my first Wrigley trip uh, a couple years ago as well. So I've only been to uh, the staple old time baseball parks once each. From a business perspective, I think the Cubs have the best business and it's not even their doing. But the business plan is you don't really need to have a good ball, a good team. If you're the Cubs, going to Wrigley is just the event in itself. People want to go to Wrigley to go to Wrigley and spend the afternoon and and sort of watch. If the Red Sox stink, I don't know if Fenway's filled. If the Yankees stink, then Yankee Stadium is not filled. If the Cubs aren't that great, if they stink, people still want to go and make an afternoon out of hanging out at Wrigley Field and Wrigleyville. Yeah, that's interesting. Fenway is 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 smaller, I, I would expect, right? Probably a, a, bit, a bit smaller. Mm-hmm. So that would help if when when the team is bad, there, there's certainly less less seats to fill, which we've we've seen in New York at times when the teams have not been good. Uh, you see a bunch of empty seats. Um, but yeah, also Fenway, the thing I've never understood about Fenway, they get away with having so many day games, which I think would just be difficult in most cities to, to fill seats in that regard 
as well. Um, but you're right. This would be a really interesting study to look at the, the, the money that gets left on the table when you have a stadium that dates back to 1915 and kind of the, the brand value that you get that maybe offsets some of that by having the most famous tourist attraction-y must-see uh, visit locations in, in each of their cities. Did you play uh, any Dropkick Murphys, get yourself pumped up while you were there, anything like that? The one thing that did catch me off guard, I assumed that um, Sweet Caroline was the seventh inning stretch song. And the seventh no, inning the stretch song. totally didn't didn't realize that. So seventh inning stretch came, I'm ready for Sweet Caroline. You know, stand <laughs> up, the whole thing doesn't happen. The people next to us also asked, they were like, hey, is this when they do Sweet Caroline? No, I, I was like, I don't know. I've never been here before. I thought it was right now also. And the, the the Red Sox were up by so much the stadium was emptying. They played Sweet Caroline in the eighth inning, oh. not not at the end of the game, and also not at the seventh inning stretch. Um, but that one uh, that was a surprise to me. I figured uh, that the seventh inning stretch song was was Sweet Caroline. Well, you knew it wasn't New York, New York. Anyway, speaking of New York or close by Newark, New Jersey, not too far away in Philadelphia, Tad Brown in where Scott O'Neill was out. Tell me about Tad Brown coming to Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. Yeah, this seems like a fairly good hire. Tad has been at the Houston Rockets and the Toyota Center uh, for almost 20 years. He's been CEO of the Rockets for 15 years. I see a lot of synergy here, Scott. I think Harris Blitzer is kind of a overall a bigger sports and entertainment company, but under Tad's guidance, the Rockets were very early into esports. Harris Blitzer is also uh, very early into esports. He oversaw the NBA team and the arena simultaneously. Harris Blitzer has an NHL team and its arena in addition to an NBA team. I see uh, ways in which his experience down in Texas running across a, a number of different entities and the synergy, business synergies between them. I see that being an asset and certainly something that I would imagine HBSE looked at before hiring him. Yeah, and, and no inside knowledge, as we had said before. Listen, I consider Scotty a friend. Um, people kept asking me, who's going, who's going? On my short list of folks, like Tad was one guy I had in my head because this is not some, I don't think anyway, that Harris Blitzer and these two teams are somebody put a newbie in, sort of, you know, someone working their way. You need that, CEO of the big organization experience if you're going to take over. So clearly, Tad has that. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, it's very interesting to see how this scales. We know that Josh Harris, who is the Harris and Harris Blitzer, uh, we know he tried to get the New York Mets. There was at least looking at other assets. You never know, is he looking for a National Football League team? What we know about Harris Blitzer is it will not stay static. Right, whether it's a international or other U.S. leagues, that they're going to look to grow and scale. So, in my opinion, you needed somebody with that sort of experience sitting in those boardrooms with the commissioners and other owners. Tad was on the board of governors for the Rockets, so he certainly knows what those meetings are like. Uh, I thought that was sort of vital experience for the new person to have. And, and to underscore that point, you mentioned the board of governors. Correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of owners sit on the board of governors for for the NBA. It, it is fairly rare to have a CEO representing his team in in that spot. Yeah, there, there are right? governors and alternate governors. Um, there there were, I mean, and I, I have staked out more than my fair share of Board of Governors owners meetings. And there are a handful where a representative, whether it's the CEO, the team president, shows up in the owner's stead. Um, it does happen. Um, but, uh, you know, and I, and I have seen Josh Harris there. Uh, so, um and, but boy, if I go way back in the day when you're talking the Rockets, you know, I, I saw Les Alexander in his sweatsuits and his glasses there too, you know? <laughs> so, um, 
it, it can just be something as simple as does the schedule permit? Where am I going to be? Or is this something I need to be at? Can my, can my CEO be there? But I think it, it works both ways. But oftentimes you're right. Uh, the, the owner is the governor and you'll appoint somebody else, sort of a, an alternate governor. And Tad oversaw the, the $2.2 billion sale of the rockets from Les Alexander, who you mentioned, to Tillman Fertitta. It seems pretty clear that he had a lot of responsibilities, more so maybe than your average MBA CEO. One other thing here, Scott, that is interesting, at least to me, there's a reuniting here of Tad Brown and Daryl Morey, longtime Rockets GM, who the Sixers hired uh, about, about a year ago, I believe, to be their president of basketball operations. How much do you think that played into a decision here? The fact that the guy who runs the Sixers specifically from on, on, on the basketball operations side is very comfortable and very friendly with Tad himself. Now, how do I answer that? In a percentage? In a, how, how, how important was it? How do, much do of a role that, did it play? Or is that just a coincidence? No, I don't think it's a coincidence. I, you can be sure that Daryl was asked, you know, how was he to work with? Um, what do you think? Is this the route you would go? If Daryl had a terrible relationship with Tad Brown in Houston, uh, the chances would be slim to nil that you thought I was going to say none, didn't you? I, I don't know. In honor of the Euros, slim to nil, or how do you say nothing in Italian? Uh, <laughs> slim to that, that Tad Brown would be the CEO right now. Got it. Okay, let's move on. You just mentioned the Euros. There was another big sporting event over the weekend, UFC 264 in Las Vegas, headlined by Dustin Poirier against Conor McGregor. Did See, this not- is why, by the way, I'm going to interrupt you. This is one of those reasons why I say I don't buy this stuff. <laughs> I, I don't, I, it's, whether one round, two rounds, like, I, I'm not getting together with everybody. Right? It was over in, like, nothing. And I'm on Twitter, and I, I found out what happened. Pictures were you know were out in two minutes. People were giving me their commentary in three minutes. Uh, you know, Connor is wheeled out of surgery. He's already giving me like uh, you know his, his videos to promote the next thing. But go where you were going to go when I interrupted. But yeah, that, well, that's why I don't get it. We did can you ex- get it? explain to people. I did not buy it. No, I did obviously watch watch the highlights. Um, we can explain to people what happened in, in in the end of the first, the very tail end of the first round. So about five minutes into the fight, Connor stepped awkwardly backwards and broke his shin bone. On one of his legs, uh, it it cracked. Essentially, you could see it in the in the footage. Broken tibia. He went down. The round ended, and the doctor came out and said, "This this this fight is over." Obviously, so it ends in a in a Poirier victory by I think technically by doctor's decision, Um, but not the fight I think a lot of people were hoping for. This guy, we've talked a lot about Conor McGregor. Are you happy if you flew to Vegas? I was out in Vegas not long ago, Eben, you know this. I was out in Vegas and there were a lot of people hyping this fight. And are you coming back? And are you going to come back for the for the McGregor-Poirier fight? Oh, it's the big event. It's the first really big thing back, yada, yada, yada. Like, if I made a special trip out to Vegas for that, I wouldn't be too happy. No, I wouldn't be happy. But if you're a fan of the the Buccaneers or the Milwaukee Bucks and you fly to Phoenix for game two and they get blown out by 35 points. You're also not happy, right? Well, at least they a- play four quarters though. <laughs> no, I'm not happy, but they yeah, play four quarters. And, and this is a risk of, of, of major fights, right? Is that they can it's like the and, Mike Tyson fights, but with Tyson, you wanted to say with Tyson, you knew it was probably going to last less than 45 seconds, but like the absolute like barrage, the beatdown is like, that's what you wanted to see. Like you were okay with it ending in a flurry of craziness in 30 seconds because that's what the guy does. Like this, I think you want to see a little something, right? Yes, and you do. And this is this is not the way you want any fight to end, right? I think if 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 Connor had been knocked out 
in, in this quickly, I think you'd, you'd be a lot, there'd be a lot less of a conversation here than the fact that, you know, he, he took a step the wrong way and ended up removing himself uh, from the fight. It does make me wonder a bit about Connor and his stardom, Scott. He's the highest paid athlete in the world as, as, as we've done. Um, we have him on our rankings, $208 million last year, more than any other athlete in the world. The vast majority of that comes from endorsements in the ring. However, I think he's lost three of his last four fights, including two in a row to Poirier. He's going to be out a while while he rehabs. It felt like a lot of UFC fans, at least in my Twitter account, were getting a little tired of his of his trash talking bravado shtick, uh, even after this fight went the way it did. Um, what do we expect from Connor if he? But, they, continues but do you to get the fight? sense that they, would they have been tired? Would they have been tired of the bravado shtick if he won, or is it just the fact that he's lost three of the last four? I mean, like I if you win fact- and back it up. No, you're right. I mean, if if Conor McGregor has won his last four fights, he's potentially fighting for a title. He's the biggest star in UFC. He is a bankable, you know, gate revenue, probably pay-per-view revenue guarantee, but he's not that anymore. And as we've said before- All right, Evan, here's my thing. Yeah. Here's my thing. UFC needs to create a division where they bring in performance counselors and teach hype. Hype 101, hype 201, then you graduate to the advanced degree of hype because Connor can teach graduate level Harvard hype. That that's what he's really good at it. The fact and he understands this. Everything we're discussing, he understands, which is why I'm guessing that he did the video right out of surgery. Like he understood that he has to get himself back in this game somehow, whether it's trash talk Poirier or figure out we're going to come back stronger and better. And it's, there's got to be a third. This isn't really a victory for him because I got hurt. He understands that he's got to create the hype. If he has any chance of generating another, whatever the, the payday is 50, 67, whatever it is, if he wants one of those, he's got to give people a reason to want to watch it. And the strategy of it all, literally being wheeled out of surgery or in his room, the the comeback begins. The hype machine started right away. This guy is otherworldly Harvard-level hype. I love it. How good... I mean, can, can that overcome winning? If he just keeps losing consistently, can, can no, the, the hype no. continue to, to no, draw? No, of right? course you, not. You, you, no, kinda, but you, think, you can't have just hype. No, but I think he's just going fight to fight. And if he has any hope of that next one and being the guy in one more big payday, you got to start somewhere. And he started right away. So, of course, I think if, he, if, if that fight ever does happen, who knows? But if it does and he loses again, all right, then I think people sort of kind of tune out and be like, there's nothing really left here. Now you're just now you're just howling into the wind. I'm not a big follower of MMA, but I do wonder how much who's waiting in the wings in UFC right now to be the no next idea. Conor McGregor. Are are there young stars, really talented fighters who, if Conor McGregor doesn't win in his next fight, uh, or if he doesn't fight again, who is going to step up to be that main bankable, love him or hate him star in UFC? Because this this is an industry that thrives, combat sports thrive on those personalities. Absolutely. I would say that my my piece of advice would be for every 30 minutes you spend in the gym, spend 15 in, with a performance coach. <laughs> and I'm, I'm serious. I, and I, I am dead serious with it because it is about theater. It is about emotion. This is entertainment. Connor knows how to entertain. Do not diminish what that means. So, you know who else is making a lot of money, by the way, as we finish up the show? You know who's mm. making big bucks? You don't no. know? 
Tell Ooh. me. Wait, we talk about fight cards? How about card cards? How about Michael Eisner? <laughs> How about Michael Eisner and Tops? You ready for this? Tops is going public in a merger with Mudrick Capital Acquisition Corp. Two. <laughs> That's Jason Mudrick, the investor, of course. Values Tops at, here's the number for you, 1.6 billion with a B. Billion dollars up from 400 mil three years ago. That is pretty good improvement or <laughs> ROI for Michael Eisner. And I don't know if you've got any of the details I can get into them, but that, that's some great ROI because a lot of that, a lot of that money is going right in Michael's pocket. Yeah. I think you get into the details. I mean, I read Brendan Coffey's story on, on Sportico. I thought it was great um, about not just how the, the appreciation of the company is helping him, but there's special dividends. There's been some refinancing happening soon. It does seem yeah. as though I believe Eisner bought tops back in 2007, but it does seem yep. as though, as we've said on the show recently, th- this boon in the collector memorabilia universe that's happened amid the pandemic has been very, very lucrative for Michael Eisner. Yeah, he's sitting on $540 million in shares. And this is the part I love about Eisner. And of course, when, when you're Michael Eisner, and best known, of course, for running Disney, and he had fantastic pay packages there. But when you're coming like this, you can make demands that others cannot. So uh, he got a super voting class of shares. They were created just for him when he, when he bought the company. 86% of the voting power belongs to Michael Eisner. So that means whatever Michael Eisner thinks Top should do and Top should be and Tops will go forward, he's got control. Good luck trying to stop it. It's 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 a majority of one. Scott, do you think if we look back in in five years or ten years at at a lot of these companies like Tops or um, like like Collectors Holdings that we talked about last week that that is buying uh, Golden Auctions, do you think we look back on this and see? 2020 and 2021 as a spike and then back to normal? Or do you think we've kind of fundamentally changed through things like NFTs, the the trajectory of these companies moving forward? I think we fundamentally changed. Uh, people are looking with so much wealth and with so much money out there, people are looking just for alternative asset classes. And whether it's going to be baseball cards or sneakers or NFTs, what whatever it may be, um, or, uh, yeah, I mean, it could be anything. I, I just think people are looking for other stuff. And this has, especially the NFTs, uh, has, has really changed the way people view it all. So you tell me, do we have time for the Olympics or do you want to end it there? What do yeah, you let's do Olympics real quick. Go for it, go for it. Yeah, sure. So the Olympics are going forward uh, as planned the second time, starting on July 23rd. We learned last week because of a state of emergency in Tokyo, there will be no fans, not even Japanese fans at the events that are happening in Tokyo. Uh, that's obviously a big deal for people who have insured the tickets and the hospitality portion. Uh, Fitch ratings said on Monday that the reinsurers for various parts of the Olympic Games are going to lose 300 to 400 million dollars as a result of payouts related to ticket refunds and hospitality refunds Scott I'm not shocked that it's uh, a lot of money 300 to 400 million seems like a lot but they said that it, that is about 15 to 10% of what would have had to have been paid out by insurers if the event didn't happen at all. So for people who are Absolutely. wondering why in the middle of a, an emergency, as a lot of people in Japan, including political leaders in Japan, say they don't want the games to happen, why it is continued to be pushed forward, that's the reason why. Because there are multiple billions with a capital B that are on the line here if these games don't happen. As is the case with most 
big time sports. We all know their their media TV properties, and whether you want to say streaming, you know their, their media properties. It's the lion's share of revenue comes from the media. So if you have to continue with no fannies in the seats, that's fine. Do anything and everything to protect your media partners. And in the U.S., that is NBC, which forks over billions of dollars for the right to put the games on their airwave. So. Uh, it, it always goes back to the TV and the media. You got to get that money. So if that means for whatever safety protocol uh, because of COVID can't have folks, that's fine. As long as we can beam those images around the world and people can send, they can sell those commercials and sponsors feel like they're getting you know some real value for their brand because they're they're getting seen and talked about around the world. That that's mission number one for the IOC. There it is. Uh, Scott, I think that wraps it for us. You've been listening to the Sportacast, the flagship show in what will be the Sportico Podcast Network. He's Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. I'm Evan Novi Williams on Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. And shout out to Cora Veltman, our social media editor. You can follow the show at Sportacast and download it wherever you get your podcasts. 